Well, good morning. And we move now to the second half of John 15, or the last few verses there, and on into John chapter 16. Good to see you this morning. Hope you had a good rest last night. And uh, I've been reveling in uh, just uh, how the Lord uh, is speaking to my own heart in these days. I've enjoyed so much hearing Brother Cook again. Uh, We got to know each other at uh, the Bill Rice Ranch back in, uh, I suppose, probably the early 90s. (laughs) So it's been a while. And I've been blessed by his preaching every time. And uh, I've uh, had the privilege of preaching together with him one time at a teen week at the ranch. And I've never forgotten that. And uh, those were special times. Of course, he was the lead speaker. (laughs) And I uh, have appreciated his ministry over these years. Well, uh, we're going to get back into uh, this uh, series on when the Spirit comes. When I was in high school, I remember one day my father handed me a a little purple-covered book. It was kind of thick. And uh, he said, John, I want you to read this. It's called Fox's Book of Martyrs. So I was, you know, 15, 16, 17, something like that. And uh, I began to read that book. And at that time, I wasn't much of a reader. uh, But because my dad asked me to do it, I, of course, was doing it. But I'm going to tell you, God stirred my heart. Because the stories in there of the martyrs and the persecution of God's people uh, was not just adults. It was not just preachers. It was not just men. There were ladies. There were teenagers that uh, loved Jesus enough to be loyal to him. And then paid for it. And you know, your heart is just stirred when you read these real life accounts of what has happened. You know, Jesus said to his generation, you, you know, your fathers persecuted the prophets. And that, of course, now Jesus was facing the persecution from the uh, sons of uh, former generations. And so Jesus lets us know that uh, this is a part of it. Now, in John 14, 15, and 16, there's so much glory truth. I mean, the whole series is entitled, When the Spirit Comes. Jesus said, I'm leaving, but I'm sending the Spirit. We'll see those specific words here in a moment. And he talks about what's going to happen. And he, we saw yesterday that, uh, you know, when you abide in the vine, you, uh, you, ha- you access the love of Jesus. And uh, that word love is mentioned nine times, those uh, 17 verses, actually from verse 9 to uh, 17 in John 15. And, and then joy, and, and there's, we're going to see answers to prayer and, and much fruit and all of this glory truth. And persecution. <laughs> That's the part we leave out. <laughs> Somehow in Western culture, we don't, we don't wrap our brains around this. And we don't, uh, we don't get it sometimes. But it's in the same passage that talks about all these blessings. When the Spirit comes, yes, there's tremendous blessing and persecution. And there is a sense where that's a blessing too. <laughs> and we need to see it that way. And so I want to speak in this hour as we conclude the series on new persecution, the Christ life privilege. So let's ask the Spirit of God to be our teacher once again. Blessed Holy Spirit, we thank you for what you've been doing in our hearts. We thank you for the glory truth that we have been looking at. Now, Lord, give us a right perspective on the promise of persecution. And Lord, I pray that we would have the biblical viewpoint, the viewpoint of faith. And uh, Lord, uh, give us right understanding here. Lord, speak to us today as we're in this final day of this conference. Lord, all day long, breathe on us once again. Lord, we need fresh wind. We need fresh fire. 
And Lord, I pray that you would grant that today. Nurture faith in our hearts. Do something that's deep. Do something that's lasting. I do plead the blood of Jesus to protect us from the attack of the enemy once again, who seeks to hinder and to deceive and to derail and to discourage. And so, Lord Jesus, we claim the victory that you won at the cross through your blood. We claim our position in you at the throne far above the enemy. And in your name, exercise your authority over any powers of darkness that would seek to hinder in this hour and in this day and trust you that that not be allowed. So, Lord Jesus, may you be lifted high and exalted. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We've seen that when the Spirit comes, there's a new economy, a spirit dimension. Ah, the Holy Spirit is not just with us. He is in us. We've seen that new analogy, the vine life, that we are uh, connected uh, to that vine, to Jesus. Uh, We're in him, and he is in us by his spirit, so that there can be uh, literally the production through his life of much fruit that brings glory to God this side of heaven. But there is also a new persecution. The Christ life consequence, and yet... This is a privilege. Do you know that not everyone likes Jesus? In fact, in Corinthians, the Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus is the savor, which is the word fragrance. Uh, And he is the fragrance of life unto life to some, to those who believe, and death unto death to others. And the more Jesus is manifest... The greater the attraction for some, the greater the repulsion for others. When we live mediocre lives, there's not a great attraction, there's not a great repulsion. But the more Jesus is manifest, the more John 14 and the first half of John 15 are evident in our lives then the more the reality of Jesus and the fragrance of his life is around us, and the more that is true, the greater the attraction and the greater the repulsion. And uh, the attraction part we like, (laughs) as people are touched in that positive way by Jesus, and they bow the knee, and they're saved, and they grow. But when people start throwing rocks, we tend not to like that. But you know, that is a part of it. And the early church believers rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. I remember my father went over to the country of Russia years ago. And he's been in the Eastern European countries uh, behind the Iron Curtain when the Iron Curtain was still up. He was in Romania and uh, so forth. And he said, you know, the believers over there are perplexed about how Americans view persecution. Because American Christians generally, you know, we think it's the worst thing in the world. (laughs) When the fact is, the scripture says, Jesus said, the apostle Peter said, no, this is a part of it. (laughs) And they, of course, experience it often and they embrace it. Not in the sense of having a martyr's complex, but understanding that when Jesus is real, this is the way it is. And so uh, they are they are perplexed at how uh, Western culture and uh, American culture, uh, you know, kind of runs from it, and and we we don't rejoice <laughs> as the believers in Acts rejoiced 
that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. As we see in that opening paragraph on page 28, persecution, this is the last third of the paragraph, can come obviously from the unsaved. That's what we generally think of. And when we read an account like Fox's Book of Martyrs that gives the accounts of much persecution throughout history, the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, and all of that, uh, then that is uh, persecution that is coming from the unsaved world. But it is also true that persecution can come from worldly Christians who like the irreligious side of the self-life, and though they're saved and on their way to heaven, don't talk to me about being sold out to Jesus. And persecution can also come from legalistic Christians who like the religious side of the self-life. And give me the box, I'll get in it, and don't bother me with a relationship with Jesus. And so those are more subtle kinds of persecution in some cases, but it's still persecution. And when persecution comes, often it surprises us when it really shouldn't. Because in a passage like this, and there are other passages like this, we're told, no, this is part of it. (laughs) This is how it works. And this is why Jesus here in this passage gives us a heads up ahead of time. So that we're not totally shocked and taken by surprise when persecution comes. Now obviously, as you see in the bullets here, there is persecution from the lost. uh, uh, Because of the gospel, the gospel of sinners, the gospel of salvation. I think of Donald McPhail. I mentioned his name the other night. He was a teenager in 1950, uh, 16 years old. And in the village of Arnold, when the revival that had begun in Barvis on the island of Lewis, uh, over there off uh, the northwest uh, part of Scotland, out in the outer Hybrides Islands, when that revival began, it uh, it began to spread. And Duncan Campbell's uh, meeting that was supposed to last for 10 days was now uh, continuing. And it, and it uh, went from village to village for three years. Well, early on in that, in April, so this is four months into that awakening, uh, Duncan Campbell came to uh, the village of Arnold and this teenager named Donald McPhail, a uh, man about uh, six foot six, uh, he uh, got converted <laughs> in April of uh, 1950. And I got to meet him in the summer of 2000, uh, just before we came here for the uh, Avoca conference. Uh, we were over there on the island of Lewis, and I really wanted to meet him. I was, I was putting, you know, I was figuring it out. I said, you know, he, he'd only be 66, you know, we could meet this guy. <laughs> and so Mary Lynn and I had been praying uh, before we ever uh, went on that trip that God would allow us to meet Donald McPhail. Because when you read the accounts of the Lewis revival, uh, this teenager not only got saved, he grew quickly, he joined the intercessors, the praying men of Barvis, and uh, when Duncan Campbell was in rough turf, he'd ask the praying men to come and they'd pray and God would break through uh, the atmosphere and the revival would come to another village. And uh, twice in those accounts, when this teenager prayed the fire fell I mean immediately (laughs) and it's just a glorious uh, uh, thing and so I wanted to meet him so we got on the island of Lewis and uh, uh, we got to uh, uh, 
probing, trying to find people that were connected to the revival, and God allowed us to meet four people that were converted in the revival. And earlier on, I met a man by the name of Donald Smith. Uh, He had been in the 1939 uh, revival as a teenager and went through it, rejecting Jesus, but remembering the revival. But uh, when the uh, 49 revival came that uh, lasted to 53, he got converted in 1952. When I met him, he was 75 years old. And so we, uh, he had us into his house for tea. It was really neat. And uh, so on. And uh, I said, well, what about Donald McPhail? Where's he? He said, oh, Donald McPhail. He said, you know, in 1962, he went to the country of Yemen. He's been a missionary uh, there uh, ever since. He said, but he's on the island right now. <laughs> he said, I'll call him. He said, I'm sure he'll meet with you. And so he called him and set it up. And we met in the village of Arnold where he was converted in the very building that he was converted in. We met for two hours. I'll never forget it. And we talked uh, uh, about uh, the Lord, about revival and God's working and so on. Got to meet his son as well. And on the ferry boat, we got to talk to them. And, you know, in the country of Yemen, Christianity is persecuted severely. In fact, that very week, some of the believers that God had used Donald McPhail to lead to Christ were next up to be executed. There is that kind of persecution. In fact, we're told, and this really fits in with just the population increase, that there is more persecution right now in our world than there ever has been, by far. And when we're in countries where we don't see it, and we're not hearing in the story about somebody losing their head for being a Christian, and for preaching the gospel, uh, sometimes, you know, out of sight, out of mind, and uh, uh, we, we, we don't understand it, but it's happening right now in many parts of our world. There is a uh, persecution uh, uh, toward the gospel, gospel of sinners, but there's also a persecution toward the gospel to saints. We sang just a moment ago uh, in Beulah Land about full salvation. <laughs> And what that's referring to is not only is there the gospel to sinners that you can be delivered from the penalty of sin. There's the gospel to saints. You can be delivered from the power of sin this side of heaven. But there's a persecution toward that gospel as well. When Jonathan Goforth from the countryside in Canada uh, was called to preach, he was, uh, he was just one of those devoted young people. Absolutely sold out to Jesus. And he was looking so forward to going to Bible college and thought, this is going to be great. I'm going to be with all these other people my age that love Jesus and want to serve God and are committed. And he got to Knox College and he couldn't find those kind of young people. And they immediately saw he was a country boy and he was devoted and uh, they made fun of him. And he was uh, from a poor family and had just enough money to buy some material. He was going to go to the shop and have them make a suit, and that was going to be his one suit for college. And the other boys found out about it, cut a hole in that material, uh, put, it, uh, put his head through it, and forced him to run down the hallway and made a fool of him. But you know, in his case, the persecution turned. <laughs> and he continued to be on fire. He never caved. And Jesus was manifested in that young man's life. And when he graduated, the student body had been so touched by Jesus through the life of Jonathan Goforth that they decided they would be 
the support for him to go to China, and he never had to go out on deputation. All the support came from the student body. (laughs) But it began with persecution. You see, when you embrace Jesus, recognize, you need to understand all the blessings, yes, but understand the consequence, or better put, the privilege of persecution. Now, why should we even think about this? I want us to see two reasons from the text that we're going to look at uh, today. Two reasons that are really two promises. Number one, Jesus promised persecution. (laughs) Now we talk about, you know, obtaining the promises. And when we talk about obtaining the promises, we're usually thinking of the good ones. (laughs) You know, the positive ones. And uh, most of the time we're not thinking about, you know, obtaining the promise of persecution. (laughs) But it is a promise. And so uh, there are uh, uh, right causes for persecution. We see this at the bottom of page 28. And so here we're going to pick it up in John 15, verse 18. Uh, You know, there are right causes for persecution, which means there's also wrong causes. Some believers are getting persecuted, and it's because they're just (laughs) obnoxiously asking for it. That's That's a wrong cause. You know, my father used to say that when you go beyond the Bible... And uh, you become an extremist. In other words, uh, you go far beyond what the Bible says. My father used to say extremism loses credibility. And often people uh, get persecuted. And in their case, they think they're suffering for Jesus when in fact they're suffering for the religious side of their flesh. <laughs> and that's a different thing. But at any rate, there are two right, uh, several right causes for persecution. Two given here in our text. One is that it's for his name's sake. Let's pick it up in verse 18. It says, if the world hates you, Jesus said, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, which they did. They will also persecute you. There's the promise. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. So the first right cause here for persecution is that it's for Jesus' sake. It's for his name's sake. There are those who hate God. There are those who deny God. There are those who, they don't like Jesus. They don't like the message of Jesus. And uh, they, wanna, they, they, they don't want rules. They don't want uh, absolutes, uh, humanism, relativism. You know, uh, they just want to be able to do whatever they want to and so forth. And they trample their conscience because they're born with the conscience. And so they trample it until it's desensitized. And there is a, a, a whole paradigm of thinking that wants to just snuff Christianity out. And when you read history, it's a wonderful thing to read church history. I remember in graduate school, I had to read a two-volume uh, uh, history of Christianity by Kenneth Scott LaTourette. And, you know, there are times when the world, uh, under the influence of the God of this world, is so organized in its attempt to just snuff Christianity out and they're slaughtering believers everywhere. And somehow, (laughs) the gospel just spreads and there's a whole new batch of believers and they just can't squash it out. 
And there are times when it looks like it was so dark, it was just going to be over and God moves <laughs> and the light dawns and you have great awakenings and all these things happen. And uh, the church of Jesus Christ marches forward because Jesus said, I will build my church. But there are paradigms of thinking that try to squash Christianity. I remember before my father died, he died in 1997. So a little over 20 years ago now. He said, John, here in America, there's such a rise of liberalism, both politically and theologically. He said, I'm going to tell you, he said, they're just a few percentage points of way, away from being in the majority. And he said, when that happens, it will be an intense increase of an attempt to just knock Christianity out of here. And uh, in these last... Uh, 12 years, uh, we began to feel some of that, and uh, so forth, for his name's sake. So that's the first right cause. Then on top of page 30, there's also the cause of a double witness. I love this. Let's jump down to verse 26. But when the Comforter, the Helper, is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify, which means bear witness of me, verse 27, and ye also shall bear witness because ye have been with me from the beginning. Now we're going to see in a few moments when we get into chapter 16 that the Holy Spirit is the convictor. <laughs> and when he bears witness of Jesus, he convicts. And so as we give the gospel, there's that double witness. As we preach the message and we're walking in the Spirit, then the Spirit testifies. We're testifying. There's a double witness. And the Spirit is taking that truth to convict. And some people don't like it. And so there's the cause of his namesake. There's the cause of this double witness. I remember some years ago now, I got under conviction uh, reading in Hebrews where it says, Remember them that are in bonds. As if together with them. What a verse. And I thought, man, how am I going to do that? And so I heard about a magazine called The Voice of the Martyrs. And I have gotten it ever since because how can I remember <laughs> what's happening to those that are in bonds and as if together with them if I don't know what's going on? And there's very, there are very few magazines that I read from cover to cover. But that's one of them. And over these now years, I get stirred every time. Whether I'm reading about, about persecution in Sudan, some country in Africa, or persecution in the Middle East, in uh, countries like uh, uh, Uzbekistan and some of those kinds of countries, um, whether it's in Vietnam, over in Asia. I mean, you read these accounts. And I'm reading about men. And I'm, I'm figuring it out. Wait a second, that guy's my age. I preach what he preaches. He suffers for it. And it stirs me. And uh, I remember one time I was reading an account about some of the persecution in North Korea. I don't think we know a slice of the persecution that the North Korean believers have faced. By the way, when God sent the great revival in 1907 in Korea, uh, that Jonathan Goforth uh, went over and saw and wrote his uh, uh, account of it, uh, The Spirit's Fire Swept Korea, one of the greatest uh, uh, revival accounts you'll ever read. Do you know the center of that revival today is the capital of North Korea? There's a ton of believers in there 
that have suffered over these years, and it's such a closed country, we don't know the half of it. But I was reading an account about some teenagers that just wanted to get out of that country and took the risk. Uh, These were not saved teenagers. They took the risk of crossing the river. If they're seen, they're shot on sight. Uh, But they made it across into China. Well, there's believers over there in China that uh, uh, have uh, these houses there by the river, and they try to find these refugees fleeing across so they can lead them to Christ. (laughs) I love it. And uh, this one dear Chinese believer found this group of teenagers. I think there were five of them. And so he brought them into his home and uh, ministered to them and led them to Jesus. And all five teenagers trusted Jesus. And then he began to disciple them. And uh, he taught them the word of God. And they were growing, I mean, just growing like weeds and uh, taking it in. And, and uh, four of the five especially were just vibrant. There was one that was not as vibrant, but he was, you know, he was in the group. And uh, after they had grown, they realized, you know, we've got to go back. Can you imagine? They had risked their lives to get out of the country of North Korea. But they said, now we know Jesus and we have relatives and we have friends. We have loved ones. We've got to go back. They're never going to hear about Jesus if we don't go. And so this dear man equipped them and prepared them the best he knew how. And four of the five were vibrant. The other one was going along with it. He was saved, but he didn't have the vibrancy of the the others. But together, since he was with them, they went back across the river. And they began to witness. They began to testify. And the Spirit of God was working. And uh, uh, they're uh, uh, being uh, used of God. With the, in the gospel cause and sure enough they were found out and one day as they were all witnessing the uh, government uh, workers came in and uh, cracked down and uh, when that happened the man the, 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 the one that was reticent he immediately shrunk away and watched the other four taken away never to be seen again he was ashamed of himself and so He made it back across the river, went back to that house, to that discipler. The man took him in, ministered to him. And the vibrancy that the other four had was now in him. In fact, there's a picture of this teenager. I kept it for years. You could see Jesus on his face, even in the picture. You just could. How do you capture radiance that's spiritual in a picture? But it was there. And I would often look at that picture. Just, you know, you're moved. You see Jesus. And now he's equipped and ready. And now he's wanting to go back. And he went back. And sure enough, eventually his bold witness was found out. And he was taken away. Never to be seen again. Friends, that's our world. There is a persecution that's real. There is a persecution uh, against the gospel. And so, the first reason why we need to even consider this is Jesus promised it, and there are right causes for it, and we see letter B, that there is a specific reason here for the warning, and it's that we should not stumble. Look at verse 1 of chapter 16. Jesus said, these things have I spoken unto you that, for the purpose that... Ye should not be offended. In other words, that you should not be made to stumble. Don't think it crazy that this should happen. No, this is, this is how it works. 
It's always been this way. They persecuted the prophets in the Old Testament. They persecute God's people today. He says in verse 2, They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. And these things they will do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. And so he's giving this warning so that we're not made to stumble. So Jesus promised persecution. But secondly, Jesus promised help. (laughs) Even though there is persecution. Three ways that are listed out here. First of all, the promise of the helper himself. (laughs) This is glorious in verse 5. He says, but now I go my way to him that sent me. And none of you asketh me whither goest thou. Where are you going? And uh, verse uh, 6. But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you. That is, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter, the helper, will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. So in verses 5 and 6, Jesus is saying, I'm gone. (laughs) But it's to your advantage because I'm sending my spirit. And as we already saw in verse uh, chapter 14, he said, you know him because he dwells with you and now he's going to be in you. And so the advent of the spirit, the coming of the spirit, Jesus leaving and the spirit coming. And so we have this promise of this comforter, this helper. And he has a specific work among unbelievers as well as among believers. Notice uh, the work of the Spirit among unbelievers, verse 8. And when he is come, he, the Spirit, will reprove. That's the word convict or convince the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, notice the last phrase of verse 7 and the first phrase of verse 8. The end of verse 7 says, I'm going to send the Spirit to you. Beginning of verse 8 says, and he will convict the world. Do you get it? It's through you. (laughs) I'm going to send the Spirit to you. And he, through you, will convict the world. That is God's plan. He didn't say, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to the world and he'll convict the world. He said, I'm sending the Holy Spirit to you. And it is through the people of God that the Holy Spirit does his convicting work in the world. And that's that's God's plan uh, to fulfill the Great Commission. And it's also the reason why there's persecution. Because not everybody likes the conviction. Not everybody responds to it. You know, the Spirit moved on the uh, believers that were in that prayer meeting in Acts chapter 1. A 10-day prayer meeting. I wonder what would happen today if we had a 10-day prayer meeting. But a uh, 10-day prayer meeting, and, and the Spirit came and, and, uh, and filled these believers. And uh, Peter got up and preached, and uh, they were pricked in their heart, and 3,000 were saved. And then in chapter 7, we read that Stephen was filled with the Spirit, just like Peter was. The Spirit of God's working again. And 3,000 were not saved, but Stephen was stoned. <laughs> You had two different audiences. In Acts 2, you had religious seekers. In Acts 7, you had the Sanhedrin that had hardened themselves against Jesus. But you also had a believer filled with the Spirit in both scenarios. They both saw results. (laughs) Radical results. Now, I personally like Acts 2 results better than I like Acts 7 results. But (laughs) uh, the fact is, it was... Because of the work of the Spirit in both cases. And so he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And he gives the details of sin because they believe not on me. 
Do you know the only sin that God will not forgive is not believing on Jesus? Every other sin can be forgiven. Every other sin can be forgiven. The only sin that's not forgiven is not believing on Jesus. So he will convict of sin because they believe not on me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. When Jesus walked this earth, he was the God-man. He was all God and yet all human. That is, he still was deity, but to come into our world, he set aside the use of the attributes of deity. He still possessed those attributes, but he set aside using them so that he functioned as a man in total dependence upon the Spirit and was the perfect example of righteousness. But he was leaving. And so he said, I'm sending the Spirit, and he will also convict of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. The perfect examples now in heaven. And so the Spirit will convict and convince of that reality of righteousness. In other words, that's the righteousness you and I need. You can't get into heaven unless you're righteous. But our righteousness won't do. (laughs) And his righteousness will. Only God meets the standard of God. That's why I said the other day, uh, that's why uh, we need imputed righteousness in salvation and imparted righteousness in sanctification. But the fact of the matter is the Holy Spirit convicts concerning righteousness because until a person realizes it's only the standard of God that meets the standard of God. I remember talking to a lady in Ohio and she was a very self-righteous lady. She thought she could work her way to heaven. She thought she was good enough. And I was showing her, uh, I was seeking to show her from the word of God, no, uh, the standard is God. The standard is perfection. You need the righteousness of Jesus. She said, well, you're not giving me any credit. (laughs) Well, that was the whole point. And so the Holy Spirit has to convict people, look, you need perfect righteousness. His name is Jesus. So he convicts of righteousness because I go to my father and you see me no more. And of judgment. Because the prince of this world is judged. I'm going to tell you something. At the cross, Satan was dealt the death blow. That's when the seed of the woman, Jesus, bruised the head of the serpent, Satan. The death blow was given and uh, Satan was defeated. It'll be fully manifested in the book of Revelation, but it happened at the cross. And so uh, he says the spirit will convict of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. And everybody who follows him is going to be judged as well. That's why you need Jesus. And that way your judgment is put on him. And so the Holy Spirit does this convicting work. You know, he can do it in a moment. I was in a meeting one time in the Philadelphia area of Pennsylvania. And uh, a lady in the church says, I'm so burdened about my neighbor. I'm trying to get her to come. And, and uh, oh, she says, I hope she comes. She needs to, the, to get saved. And, and uh, a day or two into the meeting, she said, hey, my neighbor's just, she says she's not willing to come. So I asked her. Well, if you won't come to our church where this man is preaching, uh, if I brought him to my house, would you be willing to talk to him here? And so this unsaved lady said, yeah, that'd be fine. I'll do that. So the church lady came to me and says, I'm sorry, but I can't get her to the service. But she said she'd meet with you. If you come to my house, will you come? I said, well, absolutely. So I got over there and she introduced me to this uh, uh, neighbor friend and we sat down and we had barely begun you know normally you're just trying to be kind and a little courteous conversation at the beginning of it all and we hadn't I hadn't even had the opportunity to turn the conversation toward the gospel yet toward Jesus uh, we've just barely begun and this lady goes now this matter about hell 
Well, I hadn't mentioned hell yet. We were, I hadn't even begun. Uh, she said, now this matter of hell. She said, I cannot accept that. You know, about 20 minutes later, that same lady was admitting that if she died, she'd go to hell. I can't do that. But the Holy Spirit can. Oh, she says, hell, I I, I can't accept this. And I remember saying, well, can I just show you what the Bible says? And we begin to walk through it. And we started with sin. And uh, she she admitted that. And then when we got to judgment, I just told her what the Bible said. That there is a judgment. It's called hell. It's separation from God forever in the lake of fire. That that's what we deserved. I said, ma'am, I'm about to get to the good news. But before I get there, I need to ask you a question. And I hope you'll be honest. If you died right now, where would you go? And she said, hell. The same lady that 15 to 20 minutes earlier said, I cannot accept this. Oh, friends, that's what the Holy Spirit does. He convicts. He convinces. It's not based on our wit and our intellect and that. No, we tell the truth in the, in the power of the Spirit. In other words, independence upon the Spirit. And he takes that truth with that double witness and he drives it in. Wow, that's what he does. That teenager, the North Korean young man that I told you about. Part of the story I didn't tell you yet. When he had gone back in on his own and was boldly witnessing for Jesus... When the officials came and cracked down on him and took him away, he never faltered. The radiance was still there. And the reason we know it is that one of those officials that was a part of his demise was so moved by his loyalty to Jesus and the radiance and reality of God in that teenager's life that later that official trusted Jesus Christ. That's how we know that part of the story. You see, friends, the work of the Spirit among unbelievers, it's through believers. But the Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And friends, it's not based on our righteousness. It's not based on our winsomeness. It is when a child of God in simple dependence upon the Spirit of God speaks the Word of God, and then the Holy Spirit moves. And yes, some people reject, but others trust Jesus, even in the midst of that persecution. So the work of the Spirit among unbelievers, but there's the work of the Spirit among believers. Uh, As we continue on in the passage, notice verse 12. Jesus said, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he, now notice this, will guide you, that's believers, into all truth. For he shall not speak of or from himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he shall show you things to come. You see, the Spirit guides believers into all truth. The Holy Spirit never works apart from truth. He is the Spirit of truth. So when somebody says that in the name of the Spirit they're going to do something that it defies the Word of God, they're deceived. And that happens. And people in the name of the Spirit uh, are doing ridiculous things, uh, saying, God led me. Uh, when God didn't, uh, because it uh, violates explicit or plain truth. But the truth is, the Holy Spirit does guide. And friends, when you're looking to Him, He can teach you, and you can know His voice, 
And you can learn through Bible principle how to discern his voice from counterfeit voices. You can learn to discern his voice from your own strong human desire. You can learn to discern his voice from counterfeit spirits, uh, evil spirits that come and as an angel of light try to counterfeit and so forth. But no, you can know his voice. He bears witness with your spirit, Romans eight sixteen tells us. And when the spirit of God convicts us as a child of God, it's always light at the end of the tunnel. It's always edification that if I come clean with God, God cleanses and God delivers and God frees. And any conviction that leads you to despair and just throw up your arms and no hope, that is not the Holy Spirit. That's the counterfeit. And there's many other ways of learning how to discern the Spirit. Maybe someday we'll cover some of those details. But guidance, the Holy Spirit guides. Friends, when you got saved, a personal divine guide moved in to lead, to empower, to check us. No, don't go there. And uh, sometimes even in conversation, I'm about ready to bring something up and the Spirit of God says, no, 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 don't go there. And we need to mind the checks, as somebody once said. Mind the spirit. Why? Because he's the guide. He knows what he's doing. He's the leader. And not only that, he glorifies Jesus. You see it in verse 14. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. Now remember, Jesus is at oneness with this book, the word, John chapter 1. And so Jesus said, the spirit shall glorify me. Here's how he'll do it. He'll take of what is mine and he'll show it unto you. You see, it is the spirit who shows us Jesus. And that's why there's such a great deception when there are people today who ignore the ministry of the Holy Spirit, minimize the ministry of the Holy Spirit, downplay the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and unwittingly cut themselves off from the possibility of seeing Jesus. Because the Spirit shows us the Son. He takes of what is Christ and shows Him unto us. He's the one who opens our eyes so we see the reality of truth that connects to the words. And friends, when that happens, you're seeing Jesus. Well, Duncan Campbell said that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is at its core a revelation of Jesus. <laughs> Hallelujah. The Spirit reveals the Son so that we can see Jesus. And then the Lord Jesus speaks of his death and resurrection. We won't read all the verses. Uh, he says in verse 16, a little while you shall not see me. And again, a little while you shall see me. They go through that. Verse 20, verily, verily, I say unto you that you shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice. You shall be sorrow, but, sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. And he gives the analogy in verse 21, a woman, when she is in travail, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she... Uh, As soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembers no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. And now, therefore, ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again. (laughs) And your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. And so the spirit of the risen and enthroned Christ is the one that we're dealing with here. And then there's a second part of this promise of help. Obviously, the promise of the helper himself. But secondly, letter B in page 32, there is uh, the promise of answers to prayer. Now, this is a glorious section. We could, of course, spend all sorts of time right here. But verse 23 says, And in that day ye shall ask me nothing. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall ask in the Father, of the Father, in my name, he will give it you. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask and ye shall receive. That your joy may be full. Verse 26. At that day ye shall ask in my name. And I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you. For the Father himself loves you. Because ye have loved me and have believed that I came out from God. And verse 23 is one of the great prayer promises in the scripture. 
in the book called Quiet Talks on Prayer by S.D. Gordon. He spends much time on verse 23. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. What a statement. The only condition there is asking in his name. That protects us from the selfish asking of James 4. 4, you ask amiss. But friends, what a promise that whatever ye shall ask in my name, he will give it you. And in my name, in that union with him, his authority at the throne, his leadership, his power, but in my name, and when we ask, whatever we ask in his name, it will be given. He says that your joy may be full. You know, when there has been a genuine heart cry and God answers, isn't there a rejoicing that comes? Absolutely. I think of a dear lady in our church who was very burdened about her unsaved mother. She and another lady got to praying about it. And on one uh, occasion, they came to a, 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 a really believing that God was going to do it. And so now they continued in prayer. God, you're going to do this, so you got to do it. <laughs> and they uh, continued on on that fashion. Now, having received, as it were, the promise, uh, they were asking God to manifest that promise. And that's how they prayed for seven more years. And at the end of that seven-year period, uh, this mother was now on her deathbed, going in and out of consciousness, sometimes days without consciousness, and then coming out for a while, and so forth. I had just flown in from Asia. My wife picked me up at the airport, and she was telling me uh, that the, this mother was now on her deathbed and the church had been praying and uh, they were uh, my wife said I think uh, I, I think Rashawn that's the, the lady's the, the daughter's name uh, uh, would like you to go talk to her mom and I'm thinking okay fine and Marilyn said I, I think we should do it right now I just flown in from Asia I mean you're totally blitzed you've been on the airplane for who knows how long you've been traveling for 24 hours and you know maybe 48 hours whatever it was in those oh man but she said I think we should go right now because we we if we wait till tomorrow there she may be gone I said all right let's go so we went to this hospital in Detroit and earlier that morning the mother had roused and the nurse had talked to her but when we got there she was totally unconscious and so we're talking, and there the daughter's there, another daughter, and the church had been alerted that we were going to be making the visit, so people were praying. Of course, they'd been, the two of them had been praying for seven years. And, uh, you know, it didn't look like I was going to have an opportunity. She wasn't even conscious, but one of the daughters says, look, I think she can hear even though she's unconscious. In other words, get with it. <laughs> So, oh, okay. So I started witnessing, you know, to this uh, unresponsive body. <laughs> and, you know, as if, you know, she's talking to me. And I, you know, I went through the gospel. And, and uh, when I finished, the daughter went over and asked this unconscious face, Mama, did you trust Jesus? Because I went through it as if the person was responding. And her brow furrowed. She's unconscious, but her brow furrowed as if to say, no, I didn't. And we all realize, wait a second, she was hearing. And she's still rejecting. Well, we talked further, and I'm thinking, well, you know, I guess it's not going to be this moment. Maybe there'll be a moment tomorrow. And uh, the daughter was not going to accept that. <laughs> and she'd seen the nurse pull the oxygen mask off. To rouse the patient when they need to do something. So she pulled the oxygen mask off. And I thought, oh man, hope she doesn't die on the spot. 
And she roused that mother. Now her eyes are open. Kind of in a, uh, almost a scary glare. (laughs) And I realized, you know what, I better get with it. Again, she wasn't talking. But now her, at least her eyes are open. And I witnessed to her a second time. And I was going through it as if she was understanding. And as if she was saying yes. (laughs) Because she couldn't speak. And then we came to the invitation part of it. And uh, I said, uh, in your heart, right now, you know, uh, Jesus is willing to save you. Uh, You just need to be willing to trust him. And right now in your heart, and I went through a sinner's prayer. As if she was saying yes. Because she wasn't able to speak. So, again, I just had to do it that way. And so I stepped away. The daughter comes back over. The mom's eyes are still open. And she again asked, Mama, did you trust Jesus to save you? And this time, her lips moved. And she said, yes. There was a Y and there was an S. It was yes. (laughs) And I'm going to tell you, you talk about rejoicing. (laughs) There was rejoicing among those daughters. There was rejoicing across the church. They were all uh, praying at that very moment. I'm going to tell you, you see, Jesus said, Ask in my name that your joy may be full. And then he concludes with the promise of his overcoming life. Look at verse 33. These things have spoken to you. That in me, you might have peace. In the world, you shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. There's only one overcoming life. His name is Jesus. And when you got saved, he moved in. And as you walk by faith, as you walk in the spirit, as you yield to his leadership, as you trust his power to obey his will, as you recognize it's his ability you need, and yet he's the goal, he's the leader, his will is what matters, and so you trust him. And he enables you to obey. Friends, when that happens, you are experiencing the power of the Spirit imparting to you the very overcoming life of Jesus. And you get to experience his victory. (laughs) Hallelujah. That's the Spirit-filled life, the overcoming life. And so this promise of the helper answers to prayer. Christ overcoming life should embolden us (laughs) to embrace the privilege of persecution When we embrace Jesus. When I read these accounts of persecution. Whether it's Voice of the Martyrs. There's another venue that I use to hear accounts in our world today. Especially when it's involving teenagers. I'll bring it to my son and say. Hey John. Read this. And we'll talk. Hey that kid's your age. And look how he stood for Jesus. Yes he suffered for it. But he stood. I said, John, I don't know what's going to happen in our world. But the day may come when we'll face that kind of persecution. And we need to be ready. New persecution. It's the Christ life privilege. Lord, bless your truth to our hearts. May we embrace all that you say. And Lord, may we learn. Not only the things that we consider positive. But Lord, even persecution. May we learn. To rejoice as the believers did in Acts. To be counted worthy to suffer shame for your name. We thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen.